Gangs are more of a problem in Los Angeles and Chicago than here in New York. But the Big Apple isn't immune to gang activity. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up on this morning's show, a look at today's Gangs of New York and how one author is hoping to keep kids out of their grips. I thought, what better way to address the gang problem than through literacy? Also today, bottle mania. Why are so many of us hooked on bottled water? And is tap really that bad? A Brooklyn-based investigative journalist shares what she's learned. People who think they're drinking water that's bubbling right out of the ground, you're not getting that. That's what's on tap this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. Now's the time of year when kids start to plan their wardrobe for the new school year. One thing parents and educators certainly don't want to see are gang colors as part of any outfit. Less than a year ago, the New York City Public Advocate's Office conducted a survey on gangs. Two-thirds of city teenagers reported an uptick in gang activity in their schools, and nearly half said gangs are a problem in their neighborhoods. Joining me to talk more about the issue are Doug Tompkins and Rick Curtis. Both Doug and Rick are professors at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Doug, let's start with you because you have a very interesting history. You have a Ph.D. now, but you are a former gang member. Yeah, that's true. Tell me about your background. Growing up on uh, the south side of Chicago, um, I became part of uh, the Folk Nation, a gangster cycle, um, in the uh, summer of my freshman year in high school. Things went from there. Um, eventually ended up in prison, uh, where I was still involved with uh, uh, the Gangster Disciples and other organizations, and um, came out of prison, went to school, and here I am. You spent a lot of time now trying to figure out how to keep kids away from gangs, right? One area of research that I'm involved in, we're involved in, does in fact look at uh, the behavior of young people within the community. Some of them happen to be gang members. And when looking at that, you begin to understand that uh, some of these kids and some of these young people and older people alike engage uh, these organizations for what appears to be legitimate reasons, for them at least. Rick, let me ask you, what's the draw of a gang today for America's teenagers? There's a certain cachet associated with it. Uh, it provides protection in the eyes of some kids. Um, there's a certain lifestyle that's associated with it that's publicized in a lot of magazines and online. Um, you know, I think there's a variety of things which appeal to kids. Where do we find gangs mainly today in New York City? Well, I think in the poorer neighborhoods, obviously. Um, the neighborhoods, particularly those areas that have public housing projects for which there are few recreational activities for kids, very little for them to do otherwise, other than hang out with each other and form little cliques, which over time evolve into these, into these gangs, quote-unquote gangs. And which gangs do exist mostly in New York City? I know I'm familiar with the Bloods and the Crips. Are they still around? Certainly. I think that those are the major ones right there. Um, chapters of that, you have uh, Latino gangs like the Latin Kings and the Nietas, you have the Zulu Nation, you have uh, uh, MS-13s, uh, Mara Salvatruchas, um, you have, I don't know, a um, variety of them. Are they actively recruiting, do you think? I don't really think so. Not in a classic fashion that people think that they have soldiers that go out and recruit new members. I think that they sort of naturally evolve from uh, little groups of uh, young men primarily that grow up uh, together. And what are they mostly involved with? Is it drug activity? No, I don't really think so. I, I think there's a lot of things that they 
do. I mean, I think there's boredom. To, 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 you know, they hang out together. They have fun together. I don't think everything that they do is criminal, certainly. I do think that a fair number of them do deal drugs, mm. but I don't know that the drugs are necessarily coordinated by the, right, right. By the gang itself. Yeah, yeah. That, I think it's important to understand that, that uh, when you see an individual who happens to be associated with a group, uh, and that individual is selling drugs, then you're going to assume that the gang is selling drugs. And it's been my experience that it's not the gang, the organization. Yes, sometimes monies earned by individuals through drug sales may be given back to the organization, but it's not coordinated. You have individuals who have access to the resources necessary to sell dope, selling dope. That's an individual thing. So primarily then the gangs just serve as a sense of belonging for these wayward kids? I, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, I wouldn't say that they're not drug-involved, many of them, but the drug business is different from the gang or the crew that they may be associated with. So they're, they're two separate things. I think it's important to understand that a lot of kids become part of these groups for protection. I became a part of a group for protection because kids came into the school from other uh, organizations, and we had to defend ourselves, right? And it turned into a gang, right? But within certain communities, some kids feel that they have to be part of a group to feel safe, right? These groups do also provide access to resources, whether it's for juveniles, as we reference them, or older people involved in gangs, right? And resources can be, in addition to protection, it could be access to uh, a social network, so to speak, because not all the behavior is bad. Right? It can be access to uh, employment opportunities. It can be access to uh, uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, right? Uh, but look, gangs cause crime. I remember someone saying that to me, and I'm like, okay, so do gangs cause crime or do, does crime cause gangs? You know, so I don't want to give you the impression that I'm saying to you that gangs and gang members are pure. Right, and it's all a response to you know impoverished communities and being denied access to resources and et cetera. I think what's important is to understand that within the context of those types of environments and the social economic uh, uh, makeup of the communities that these people, many of them come from, it's like gangs provide them a sense of belonging, as you said, an alternative identity, an identity of resistance, have you, right? Uh, it, it makes you feel safe, not just against being violated by another gang, right? Because the truth is, most gang violences within the gang are between gangs. Yeah, I was going you to ask you that, that question. When we hear about gang violence, is it largely these rivalries that instigate the violence? Um, a lot of the violence from where I sit is within the organization. Gang members violating gang members for failing to follow certain orders, and mm. etc. Are it's gangs violating other gangs? I think if you look at the police statistics, it bears that out also. The rate of predatory crime in New York is very low right now, you know, where strangers are preying on other people, you know. But the rate of violence between young black men, for example, is still pretty high. So, it, you know, it speaks to the fact that these young groups are sort of um, directing their violence at each other more so than the little old lady walking down the street. What would you say is the average age of a gang member here in New York City? Early 20s, maybe even lower than that, I would guess, because, you know, by the time they get to be 21 years old, they're pretty fed up with it because it's, you know, a lot of 14, 15, and 16-year-olds that are sort of coming in because of its 
cachet and popularity and its existence in, in school environments to a large degree. I've been in a couple of schools where it was clear which organization dominated, right? But one of the problems is a lot of non-gang members get caught up in the sweep, right? And we have to be very careful of assigning a gang uh, a label to young people because that label is going to follow them. That label is going to affect the way that they're treated within the school community, within their own community, by law enforcement. We put these kids out of school because of these labels. We treat them a certain way, and I know what I'm saying to be true. And then eventually it has a long-term uh, effect that results in, you know, the child, the young person, the older person having a messed up life. Rick, anything you want to add to that? I do think that the lack of opportunity for jobs, for recreation, for just anything, for diverting their attention from fighting with each other, which is what young boys often like to do, uh, you know, it would be good. And there is not a lot of attention devoted to it. Much of our attention is paid to policing these kids and making sure that they don't act out. So I just think it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a certain way. Um, you know, that we're sort of leading them into this. Rick Curtis, Doug Tompkins, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Doug Tompkins and Rick Curtis are professors at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. A children's book designed to keep kids away from gangs is catching the attention of educators nationwide, including here in New York. It's called Cool Calvin's No Bandanas for Me. I talked with author Ralph Burgess earlier this week. You were born in Newark, New Jersey. You grew up in East Orange. Were gangs a problem in your neighborhood when you were a kid? Not in my neighborhood when I was a kid. There were a bunch of kids separated by streets or schools, if you will. They were considered cliques, but they weren't considered gangs in a, in a traditional sense as we know it today. They weren't as notorious. They, they were territorial, but not, unfortunately, deadly like today. What inspired you then to create Cool Calvin? Well, as an adult, a couple years ago, I was living in a gang-ridden neighborhood in East Orange, New Jersey. I lived right down the street from a funeral home who had uh, gang-related funerals every month. I had already had a children's book out that was successful in, uh, in the tri-state area, and I thought, what better way to address the gang problem than through literacy. So I decided to have my second book address a more pressing issue, which is gang violence. How frightening was it to live in an area where you knew gang activity was so prevalent? It was disheartening. It was depressing. It was because anywhere gang exists, it decreases the quality of life in your immediate community. And I was depressed, I was upset that it was doing it to the community in which I was living in at the time. So uh, you can talk about it or you can be about it or you can do something to address it. And I decided to address it through literacy. You developed Cool Calvin. Tell us about Cool Calvin. Well, Cool Calvin is a kid, the African-American kid. He has uh, a magical flying number two pistol that flies on the learning adventures all across the world. Um, every child in the U.S. can identify with the number two pencil, and Calvin is here to teach kids lessons in character. He's a master of character education. He's here to tell kids of all walks of life, of all ethnicities, that there's truly nothing cooler than excelling academically and being civilly obedient, and especially to be gang-free. 
Calvin has a friend in the book. The friend's name is Rodney, who gets wrapped up with a gang called the Blue Bandanas. Rodney's parents separated, actually. And as many children do, Rodney blames himself for the separation of his parents um, and then clings on to the idea that a gang is a family. Calvin quickly uh, does his best to dispel those myths and remind him what uh, what Rodney once believed in, how he used to cherish his schoolwork, how he used to aspire to be a doctor, the goals that he used to have before being gang-related. Cole Calvin has an anti-gang pledge. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Um, it goes, I have a bright mind, I have a good heart, I have a strong will, I know I am smart. I pledge today to stay gang-free and to uplift uh, my community. It's all about taking a pledge to stay gang-free, and to, as opposed to what gangs do, decrease the quality of life in their community, uh, the player says, I will uplift my community. I will improve the quality of life through simply by doing the right things and not being a part of the same old things that peer pressure often gets you to be a part of. What age group is this book geared toward? Ideally age 9, 10. Uh, it has a third-grade readability. We marketed it to grades 2 to 6. I know it's important for you to get this book in the hands of educators, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been able to do that. The books are in more than 600 schools across the country. Are these books circulating here in New York City? The New York City Department of Ed just purchased 9,600 books through Sussman Sales, which is a registered distributor of books. Ralph, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Ralph Burgess is the author of an anti-gang children's book called Cool Calvin's No Bandanas for Me. Somebody bring me some water. Can't you see I'm burning alive? You're tuned to Cityscape Can't on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Coming up next, an investigative journalist from Brooklyn addresses the nation's addiction to bottled water and its environmental costs. Stay tuned. Bottled or tap? If you're like most people, you probably answered bottled. In fact, sales of bottled water in the U.S. now surpass those of beer and milk. Elizabeth Royt looks into why Americans are so obsessed with bottled water in her book, Bottle Mania, How Water Went on Sale and Why We Bought It. I talked with her about it. In anticipation of our interview, I bought a bunch of bottled water this morning. Here's what I have in our studio with me. I have Poland Spring. I have Aquafina. I have Avion, and I have CVS brand, Natural Spring Water. It's actually Gold Emblem. And there were many more bottles of water that I could have chosen at CVS this morning. It really shows how far we've come in the past couple of decades, huh? Sure. There's uh, 700 different brands out there, I, I think, that you could choose from. Now, do you think I would be able to tell the difference if I went ahead and tasted all of these waters this morning? I think that the Evian uh, would taste quite distinctive to you. It's a mineral water. Um, the Aquafina, well, I don't know how, how uh, sophisticated your palate is, but I think the Aquafina has a kind of dry taste. It is only H2O. Everything else has been strained and filtered out of it. 
And um, I don't know about the CVS water. It's a spring water, it says? It is, actually. It says that it comes from Roaring Spring, Pennsylvania. So I assume uh-huh. it's a spring water. Uh-huh. Yep. If it says spring, it has to be collected at a spring or near a spring. And that's the funny thing about the Poland Spring brand. The FDA allows that company to pump water from boreholes or wells that are near the spring or even up to a mile away if they can show that there's a hydrologic connection between the spring and their borehole and that the water has a similar chemical makeup. So people who think they're drinking water that's bubbling right out of the ground, you're not getting that with the Poland Spring Hmm. or Arrowhead or Zarka. You've spent a lot of time in Maine investigating where Poland Spring comes from. Yes. Poland Spring water has to be sourced in Maine. That's part of its so-called identity, and there's about eight or nine different sources in Maine, and I spent a lot of time in the town of Freiburg where the uh, pumping of this water is extremely controversial. Why is it controversial? Many people in that town don't want this large multinational corporation coming in, taking their water, trucking it away. Some people worry what's going to happen to their own wells or what's happening to streams or lakes, and other people just don't like the truck traffic. Um, there's 100 tanker trucks coming in every day, well, 50 in and 50 out. And other people just say, you know, it's the principle of the thing. We don't want someone else coming in, taking millions of gallons and moving it to other watersheds. It's wrong to sell water like this. People are concerned that bottled water companies will suck our drinking water supply dry, right? It's really hard to link extraction of groundwater with damage. Some people say that it's just difficult to prove in court because things take years to show up. People don't like to take court cases where the proof will be 10, 15 years down the road. But there have been cases in this country where excessive groundwater pumping has been linked with sinkholes, um, with drying up wetlands um, and uh, decimating trout populations. But in the, the stories that I tell, it's all a little bit fuzzy, and no one has definitively made the case that the pumping of Poland Spring water has hurt any any of the ecosystems around the pumps. We should point out that some bottled water does not come from the ground at all. Aquafina, as we already talked about, as well as Dasani. These come from municipal water supplies. Right. Um, If you buy Dasani in New York, it's owned by the Coca-Cola company. It's probably coming from a plant in Queens, right by uh, the beginning of the LIE. They start with New York City water, and they run it through filters and reverse osmosis and ultraviolet light, and they stick it in those blue-labeled bottles. Are you surprised people buy that? Not really. I mean, maybe people it don't care where it comes from. They just like the convenience of the bottle. They like the taste. Um, but Couldn't people, I just put a filter on my faucet and get something similar? You could put a, lots of filters on. I mean, they run it through many, many stages. You would have to um, put a reverse osmosis unit under your sink and then a, a carbon block on your tap, and then you'd get something close to it. What do you drink, Elizabeth? I drink New York City tap water that I run through a simple countertop pitcher only to speed the removal of the chlorine, which sometimes bothers me, sometimes doesn't. But I have no qualms about drinking it straight from the tap. We have great water in New York City. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. How does New York City's water rate? Highly. (laughs) But um, we are one of five major cities in the U.S. that is allowed not to filter its water because we do a pretty good job of protecting the watershed. So that water collects in the Catskills. Um, it's rainwater and snow melt, and it sits for a year, and it's exposed to the light, and um, it makes its way to us, and it just is chlorinated and fluoridated, and they put in a, another um, compound to keep metals from leaching out of the pipes, and it's rated very highly. There's concern right now about the safety of the water upstate, New York City's water supply, because they want to drill for gas there, right? 
that is pretty concerning. People wonder um, what it's that they're trade secrets. I think um, the sort of chemicals they use to 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 operate the drills, and so the companies don't reveal what what those chemicals are. And there's concern that they'll be running off and contaminating groundwater and surface water. Do you think that most New Yorkers know where their water comes from? The water that's flowing from their taps? No, I think they have no idea, and they don't know where it goes when they're done with it either. Why do you think people are ignorant about that? I think. Most people don't know because they haven't been forced to think about it. They turn on the taps, the water comes out, they get their water quality report, everything looks good. It's only when uh, there are contaminants of concern or something's going wrong with it, they, they start to wonder where it's coming from. And there isn't a lot of public education on where things are coming from and going to. It's just, you know, something that happens underground and it's mysterious. And I wish people did know more about it because I think we'd take much better care of it if we knew. But there are right-to-know laws. There are, yes. Um, they don't cover bottled water. That's an important point. Um, you can find out quite easily what your, uh, the health department and the water department have found in your water by going online or reading your annual report, which is sent to homeowners. Um, with bottled water, which is regulated by the FDA, the companies are under no obligation to reveal the results of any of their tests to the public, so it's difficult to find out what's in bottled water. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are unaware of the fact that bottled water is inspected much less frequently than the old tap water. That's right. Tap water is inspected tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, in New York of, of times a year. Bottled water gets an inspector from the FDA less than once a year. It could be up to three to five years uh, when they see an independent inspector. Are there studies that tell us that drinking bottled water is better for our bodies? No, there are no studies telling us that. It's good that we're drinking water. Um, bottled water is, is more or less the same. Actually, bottled water can contain the same amount of number and level of contaminants that tap water can contain. But as we said, the big difference is in the inspection and how often, um, visit, uh, how often the tests are done and what we know about what's in the bottles. And as you said, it's important that we drink water, and people tell us that we should drink eight eight-ounce glasses a day, right? Well, who tells us that? It's the bottled water companies that started telling us that in the 90s, maybe a little earlier, and there's no uh, medical or scientific basis for that, it turns out. There was a report that came out in the 1940s from the National Research Council which recommended we drink that much water or consume that much, but then it went on to say that most of that water can come from foods and does come from foods. It's in fruits and vegetables. Meat contains 40% water. When you eat pasta or rice, it's, most of that weight is water, so you do not need to be drinking uh, unless you're super active, and you know that's Part of this whole marketing push was we were very health conscious in the 80s and the 90s, and people were getting into exercise and yoga, and everyone was more aware of physical health. And so drinking water was more important. I don't want to tell people that they don't have to drink enough water, but people basically say drink when you're thirsty. Something else that got us to the point where we are today as far as all of these bottled water companies is this, the bottle itself. Oh, right. <laughs> Were you wrinkling the plastic? I was wrinkling the plastic, yeah. <laughs> PET plastic. I recognize the sound of it wrinkling. When bottled water first really arrived on the scene in the U.S., you know, a containerized beverage, it was Perrier in 1977, and it came in a beautiful little green glass bottle. 
it wasn't until the late 80s that bottlers started to be able to put water into PET plastic. It was lightweight, very clear, and really cheap. So it was much easier for them to get their product out there in these small bottles. And that's that's when it really took off through through the 90s. So it was a, a technological innovation. But there are concerns about drinking out of these bottles. There have been lots of Internet rumors about phthalates leaching from those bottles. It turns out there are no phthalates in PET plastic, but there are phthalates. And, and that's a plasticizer. It gives it that... Um, flexibility that we just heard from you. Um, and it, it's uh, the problem, it's been linked with endocrine disruption. Um, and it turns out there are phthalates in number two plastic, and that is the kind of milky, um, not clear plastic used in one-gallon jugs and two-and-a-half-gallon jugs of water. Um, the other chemical of concern shows up in hard polycarbonate bottles that a lot of sports bottles are made out of this, this stuff, and that chemical is BPA or bisphenol A, and that's also been linked with endocrine disruption and with cancer in lab animals. There is a movement against bottled water. Even some posh restaurants here in New York City are now only serving tap. Do you think that trend will continue? I don't know if it will continue. I think the restaurants weren't selling plastic bottles of water, and that's where this backlash took off was when we learned that it takes 17 million barrels of oil to make all these plastic bottles in the United States each year. That's not counting all of the oil also used to transport the bottles, right? Exactly. When you talk about the, when you figure in the oil used to transport the bottles to, uh, from spring to bottling plant and then to distribution and then around the country and then the oil used to keep the water cold and then the oil used to collect all the empties, um, it adds up, according to the Pacific Institute, to the equivalent of, of filling each bottle a quarter of the way full with oil. Today, the bottled water industry is what, about $15 billion in the United States and $60 billion worldwide? Right. Yeah, in 1990, it was a $115 million business in this country. So that's enormous growth. <laughs> is that pretty much steadying at this point, or is it continuing to grow? There's still growth. Um, more bottled water was sold in 07 than 06, but the rate of growth has slowed. Why is that? A couple reasons. Part of it is the economic downturn. I think people are not willing to spend money for what was a was an affordable luxury, maybe now isn't so much. Um, and then rising awareness of the bottle's environmental toll, the industry's environmental toll. Yeah, a lot of these bottles themselves, though, aren't being recycled. We should point that out as well. Right. Only about 14 or 15 percent of plastic water bottles make it back into recycling systems. A lot of people say that they buy bottled water simply for the convenience. It's aqua on the go. Do you think that if there were more water fountains throughout cities like New York and other areas that people would stop to drink there and maybe give up the bottle? Uh, I really hope so, because this is a, a personal campaign of mine to get more drinking water fountains in New York. I think that if we let people know that our water is good, that it's safe, that it's tasty, remind them that they can get an easily refillable, clean, easy-to-clean bottle, and if there were more places to fill them up, it might make a huge difference. Of course, another part of the problem is that we're all well, I shouldn't say we're all, but many of us are hygiene freaks. We're afraid to drink from water fountains because we think there are germs. I think that we have to get over this germophobia, and I talk to microbiologists about germs on water fountains, and the water is coming out of these spigots. It's chlorinated, first of all, and the chlorine inactivates bacteria. You don't have stuff growing down back in if a sick person happened to put their lips on it. But I think we could have better fountain design that uh, with high enough water pressure, design so lips cannot touch the spigot, that might go some way. And also having fountains where you can refill a bottle with it from a separate spigot. And those who 
like me, are happy to drink from this bigot will drink, and those who are skeptical will go to the other spout on the fountain and refill their bottle. A lot of municipalities are concerned about where do we get the money to continue to maintain our water infrastructures. Is there a movement towards privatization? Are we seeing that at all, where companies are saying, you know what, we'll take over your water infrastructures? Oh, sure. Across the country, private companies are coming into towns. Um, there is there's been an enormous drop-off in federal funding for the states, and so a lot of systems are in disrepair, and a lot of people who drink bottled water are doing it for what they think are good reasons, and they might be good reasons. They are afraid of their tap water. They don't think the treatment plant is um, doing the best it can, or the pipes keep breaking, and we have between 250 and 300,000 water main breaks a year in this country, and that scares people to bottle water. So in situations where these municipalities are underfunded and they can't raise the rates, then yes, private companies are coming in and offering to take over. Elizabeth Royt, the book is Bottle Mania, How Water Went on Sale and Why We Bought It. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. For more information, check out bottlemania.net. After we talked with Elizabeth, we hit the streets of New York City to ask people about their drinking habits. My name is Patricia Dorf. I drink bottled water if I'm traveling around the city and I'm thirsty because there's not enough water fountains around. My name is Angel Rohn. I drink tap water at home. I prefer tap water. I've heard so much about bottled water. I really, you know, I try not to drink it unless I'm out. My name is Ann James. I drink bottled water probably for the convenience and because I like to think it's safer than tap water, but I pretty sure it's probably not always the case. My name is Solange Morales. I don't actually drink enough, so I've been forcing myself to drink at least three bottles a day. My name is Ben Benson. I drink bottled water because I don't see a lot of clean public water fountains around. That's it for this week's Cityscape. We hope we quenched your thirst for good information this morning. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Rashida Winfield and Aaron McLaughlin. Have a great weekend.